0: Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida. It's the History Ghost Bump podcast. Hello you spectacular people. Welcome to this 315th episode of the History Ghost Bump Podcast. Ghost tours for the Theater of the Mine. I am your host, Diane. On this episode, we have an extremely haunted location, at least if all the rumors about it are true. When I visited San Antonio a couple of years ago, I went inside the Menger Hotel, and it is extraordinary. It's gorgeous, it's a museum, and the fact that it's got over 30-something ghosts supposedly in it makes it a wonderful place for us to check out, so I'm looking forward to bringing that to you guys. Before I do that, I want to welcome into the spectacular crew Megan, Ashley, Lori with an I, Sierra, Alicia, and Jessica. Welcome, everybody. And now, this moment, Naughtity. There are a handful of stories of actors dying while on set filming a movie. One of these stories involves a guy who really wasn't an actor, but his buddy got him a part as an extra on the 1941 film They Died With Their Boots On. That amateur actor was Jack Budlong, and his buddy was Errol Flynn. They knew each other from playing polo together. The film was a fictionalized biopic of George Custer, and Errol asked the producers to let his friend Jack ride into battle with the other extras. Everybody was given wooden swords as props, but Jack had a real saber, and he decided he wanted to use that. Battle scene began, and this sequence featured the Bull Run Bridge. There were some special effects blasts that went off on the bridge, and this spooked Budlong's horse. The horse reared, and Budlong lost grip on that saber, which fell to the ground, and the hilt wedged between two rocks with the saber tip pointed up. Budlong was thrown 15 to 20 feet, and right onto the saber. They rushed him to Cedars of Lebanon Hospital, and he lingered for days, finally succumbing to advanced peritonitis. Even more strange, his father had died a month before, to the day, and his brother died a week later. The fact that a sword would wedge perfectly on its hilt, and that Budlong would be thrown perfectly atop that saber, certainly is odd. Pull the covers up tight. That chill you feel isn't the air. And now, this month in history. I want to preface this month in history with a little bit of synchronicity, if you will. I was looking for details for the moment oddity you just heard when I came upon this actress's death, which took place while filming in San Antonio. I thought to myself, wouldn't it be perfect if she died in November so I could use this for the history segment? And guess what? In the month of November on the 30th in 1923, Martha Mansfield dies while filming The Warrens of Virginia in San Antonio, Texas. Mansfield was the leading actress in the movie. She was dressed in a Civil War era costume that had a billowing hoop skirt with lots of ruffles. She had just finished her scenes for the day and had gone to sit in a vehicle with some friends. A man in the car or possibly she herself lit a match that caught the costume on fire. Her co-star, Wilfred Lytell took off his overcoat and threw it over her, trying to protect her face and neck from the flames. The chauffeur of the car tore the burning dress off Mansfield as she ran from the car. 60% of her body was badly burned and at the time, there was not much they could do. She was taken to the physician's and surgeon's hospital where she died the following day. She was only 23 years old. Her body was sent to New York for burial and production on the film continued without much issue because most of her scenes had already been shot. And well, I guess Fox didn't want to lose money by halting production out of respect. San Antonio is one of my favorite cities, not only for its amazing history, but it is full of haunts. One of those haunted places is right next to the Alamo and boasts over 30 ghosts. A young man came to the city with big dreams and started the first brewery in Texas, which makes him a top entrepreneur in my book. This man would turn the boarding house where he stayed upon arriving in town into the Manger Hotel, which would host dignitaries and become a town center. Join me as I share the history and hauntings of the Manger Hotel. Augustine, Savannah, Salem, New Orleans, Alton, and San Antonio are all cities that I return to often on this podcast. They each have their own character, and when I look at that list, I realize they touch on key areas of American history that are all quite different. St. Augustine is the oldest settled city. Savannah was built as a series of squares and survived the Civil War, mostly intact. Salem was one of the first colonies and the scene of the most famous witch hunt. New Orleans has its unique architecture, jazz, and voodoo. Alton was a center for abolition of slavery, and San Antonio was a setting for the Texas Revolution. For San Antonio, I've produced episode 47 featuring the Gunter Hotel, episode 83 featuring the Emily Morgan Hotel, and one of the HGB road trip episodes from 2017 covers the Alamo and San Antonio in general. We did a fabulous ghost tour there and there are so many old hotels and haunted locations here. It's just amazing. I've shared the history of the Battle of the Alamo and the Texas Revolution before, but there's an aspect to San Antonio's history that I haven't covered. There were originally Native American people here followed by frontiersmen, but there was no civil government or organized settlement until the Canary Islanders arrived. Jose de Azlor y Berto de Berra was born in Spain to a family that had a long history of serving the Spanish crown. He married the daughter of the first Marquis de San Miguel de Aguayo, and thus he became the second man to serve in that position. This position, I guess, would be kind of similar to being a governor, and this was for the Mission San Jose. That's basically what that Spanish name means. He sent a letter to the King of Spain in 1719 suggesting that they needed more immigrants to the area to help set up a proper city. He wanted 400 families and asked that they be brought from the nearby islands of Cuba, Galicia, and Canary. The king said yes, but it wasn't that easy. Juan Lil Goraz led a group of far fewer families than that 400. There were about 25 families who started the journey, and this shrunk to 10, which grew back to 15 after a few marriages, and a group of bachelors were considered a 16th family. This amounted to about 56 people, and they had to hike overland from the Gulf to the presidio of San Jose de Bexar. They arrived on March 9, 1731. This small group would be the nucleus of the organized government, and they elected their leader, Goraz, as first alcalde or basically mayor. There are many families in San Jose that today still trace their roots to the original Canary Islanders. They laid out the village that would become San Antonio on the west side of the Plaza de la Islas, which is today the main plaza. They built the first church and government building here. Within this historic plaza, one will find the Manger Hotel at 204 Alamo Plaza, right next door to the Alamo. It was kind of funny, I was talking to Kelly and I'd been looking back over episodes that I'd featured locations in San Antonio on, and I could have sworn that we had done the Alamo, and I was like, oh my god, we haven't done the Alamo? So it's definitely on my list for the future. I've been inside this magnificent hotel, the Manger Hotel, and it's like walking into a museum where you can stay overnight. From the Victorian lobby, to the antiques, to the artwork, one is transported to another time. Perhaps that's why there are spirits locked into this location. As you know by now, I like to dig through history to find out what was on the land at the very beginning for a haunted location. So many miss the importance of this, but this is sometimes the only way to explain why a place is haunted. And I'm one of those people that wants to know the why, not just the what. Obviously, since the hotel is near the Alamo, the land beneath the building was once part of the fort. All of the men fighting at the Alamo for Texan independence died, as the fort fell to General Santa Anna in 1836. Not long after that, German immigrant William Manger arrived in town. He was only 20 years old, and he used his German knowledge of brewing beer to establish what would be the first brewery in Texas with a partner named Charles Philip Deegan. They called it Western Brewery, and it specialized in making lagers, which were in high demand because lagers were not as available. They are harder to make than porters, ales, and stouts. And oh, we're talking about beer, so I think I need to go down that rabbit hole. Won't you come with me for just a minute? Hello? Hello? Yes, I'm down here in the rabbit hole, and I've brought you with me. Now, I'm not a beer expert, but believe me, I'm working on it. I've always loved beer, but while I was with Denise, we didn't drink. And so when craft beer came on the scene, I didn't really get to try any of that. So there weren't many craft beers back when I was in my early 20s. So I'm really having fun now exploring all the great flavors out there and some not so great flavors. I'm not as crazy about the sours. I'll just say that. And not really digging the porters either. But I'm not a coffee drinker, so that's part of my problem. I just wanted to take you down here into the rabbit hole with me for a brief overview. There are two main styles of beer, lagers and ales. Porter's, stouts, and wheat beers are all ales falling under categories like IPAs, Browns, and Belgians. Box, Pilsners, and Oktoberfests are lagers falling under categories like dark, pale, and Vienna. They are made in very different ways, and this is why it was harder to get a hold of lagers back in the day. Ales are brewed using top-fermenting yeast, so the yeast floats to the top of the brewing barrel during fermentation, which takes place at a warm temperature around 50 to 77 degrees Fahrenheit. Lagers are brewed using bottom-fermenting yeast, which take longer to grow, and they settle on the bottom of the barrel during fermentation, which needs colder temperatures around 45 to 60 degrees Fahrenheit. So as you can imagine, before we had refrigeration, loggers were hard to make and maintain. And for southern areas, one had to wait until cooler weather temperatures occurred. So here we are talking about Texas. So you can imagine, loggers are not something you're really going to find here. And for me, I prefer loggers, so I would have been really bummed that I couldn't get a logger in Texas. That's another reason why I think this man is wonderful. Now we'll come back up out of the rabbit hole, but I do wanna hear from you guys. We've gotten into a lot of discussions about craft beer and stuff. What are your favorites? What should I be trying? Okay, so when Manger brings loggers to the public, it was a hit and his brewery became very popular and he started to get wealthy, even having enough to buy out competitors, so that Western Brewery became the largest operating brewery in Texas by 1878. Soon people were calling Manger the beer king. The Western Brewery was on part of the site where the Battle of the Alamo had happened. On the other side of the brewery was a boarding house owned by a widow named Mary Gunther. Manger had made one of the rooms here his home and he lived there for three years. I don't know how many long nights Mary and William spent sitting on the porch visiting or how many longing glances they gave each other in the hallways, but they eventually ended up married to each other and this made Manger co-owner of the boarding house. He helped expand the business, and they needed more rooms, so they decided it was time for the boarding house to go and a gorgeous and expensive hotel to take its place. They had big dreams, and they would make those dreams come true. <music> the Manger Hotel you see today is a culmination of years of design and construction under four different architects. The original section is a two-story building on the southwest corner that is made from limestone and designed by a local architect named John M. Fries. Fries is also credited with repairing the damaged Alamo, and he's the one that gave it that unique parapet on the front, that thing that everybody recognizes from a distance. The hotel opened on February 1st, 1859, with 50 rooms. The Victorian lobby was the original lobby on that opening day there was a large cellar built under the hotel with three foot thick walls that Manger used to chill the beer from the brewery and a tunnel was built to facilitate this storage without having to cross the street above the ground. This tunnel also brought guests over from the hotel to tour the brewery and of course have some suds. Things changed quickly for the Manger and three months after opening, William and Mary were already making plans to expand the hotel to 90 rooms. This would make the Manger Hotel the largest hotel in the area. This three-story addition was built directly behind the hotel. Things continued to be good until the Civil War broke out and business slowed way down. The Mangers decided to offer up the hotel as a hospital, and obviously many soldiers died at the hotel. After the war, it reopened and flourished. And then William Manger got sick. There's no record as to what illness he had, but he passed away at the age of 44 in March of 1871, so he died fairly young, so I'm not sure what got him, but imagine what he could have done if he hadn't died so young. Mary and her son, Lewis, announced that operations would continue and the hotel flourished even more. She bought more property in 1874 and got the hotel outfitted with its own gas source. In 1876, a chambermaid named Sally White was murdered by her husband who didn't like her working in the hotel. I don't think it was just the hotel, though. I think this guy was jealous and angry. I have no doubt that this is your typical story of she's a battered woman, and he eventually just decided to kill her. He shot her three times, but she didn't die right away. She languished for two days, and in that time, her husband was released, and he ran away, never to be caught. So nobody paid for her murder. The Manger Hotel covered the cost of her funeral, buying her a coffin and a plot. And they do have the receipt from that in one of the museum cases inside the hotel. So I think that's really cool that they thought so highly of her that they paid for her funeral. By 1881, Mary felt like she needed to retire from the hotel business, but Lewis didn't want the hotel. So she sold it for $118,500 to Major J.H. Campman. He also purchased all the furnishings. All of this would have run over $3 million today. He added a third story to the Alamo Plaza section and a third story to the north side and relocated the kitchen. Campman felt the hotel needed a new bar, and so he had one built that was considered one of the most elegant around, and it's no wonder since it was inspired by the House of Lords Pub in London. The ceiling is paneled in cherry wood, there's beveled mirrors from France, decorated glass cabinets, a cherry wood bar, and leather booths from France as well. This really is the neatest place to get a brew on tap. This is a two-story bar, so you can sit up in a balcony area and just take in the ambiance and people watch if you want to. In its heyday, the top drinks here were mint juleps, served in silver tumblers, and hot rum toddies. There's also something pretty special historically about this bar. Teddy Roosevelt loved this place, and it became the scene of the formation of his Rough Riders. There's memorabilia here that includes some of their uniforms. Some stories claim that Teddy actually rode into the bar on his horse, and a bullet hole in the wall is credited to him, too. This happened in 1898. The Rough Riders was a common name given to the First United States Volunteer Cavalry that served during the Spanish-American War. They were mustered from four southwestern states because they would be fighting in Cuba, which had a similar climate. The war started when the USS Maine was sunk in Havana Harbor, and Spain was considered responsible. So I think that's pretty cool. In 1887, a fourth story was added to the Blum Street side of the hotel and updates were made including electric lights, steam laundry, steam elevator, and artesian well. Renovations would continue through the years, adding fixtures and more furnishings and another 50-room addition. In 1909, architect Alfred Giles would add an ornamental marquee of iron, a new marble floor to the original lobby, and Renaissance revival embellishments like Corinthian columns and filigreed balustrades with wrought iron scroll work. The decorative tile floor was expanded into the Colonial Room restaurant and a leaded stained glass skylight was installed. So when you go into the Victorian lobby at the Manger Hotel, make sure you look up because not only do you want to see the beautiful Corinthian columns that are there and the different levels, but right at the very top is this beautiful stained glass window. And as you're hearing, there's all these additions being made to the hotel. When you see it from the outside, it is evident that this has been piecemealed together. It all goes together, but you can tell that there's different sections that have been added as we go along. The Colonial Room restaurant would be remodeled in 1912 by architect Atlee B. Ayers to make it match the neoclassical style that it was evolving in the hotel. The plastic mantelpiece is unique, featuring two caryatids topped with ionic capitals and scrollwork that has a nymph motif. The food is said to be amazing here. In 1924, fire would hit. The headline for the San Antonio Express read, Flames rout, manger guests, fire engine and streetcar collide five hertz. The Express reported, rarely have the firemen had to do battle with a more stubborn or spectacular fire. And this was because of all the additions and remodels to the hotel I just told you about. It was hard to get around and figure out what was parts of the hotel and the way it was leaping from balcony to balcony. It was just very, very hard. The fire started in the kitchen when an overheated flue set fire to the ceiling and the hotel's woodwork just fed it, sending flames quickly to the second floor and then over the south wing where fire gutted the third and fourth floors. A night clerk discovered the fire and ran down the halls yelling for everyone to wake up and get out. One crazy guest grabbed that clerk and threw him down the stairs. I don't know what his problem was. Thankfully, the clerk was only slightly injured. None of the 101 registered guests were injured, but the fire hit the hotel hard and damages were thought to be $100,000, which would be about $1.4 in today's dollars. And that's a much better story than what we hear in a lot of these old historic hotels. When they'd have fires, usually people would be killed. And as a matter of fact, the five that were injured were because the fire engine and the streetcar collided with each other. Had nothing to do with the actual fire. The Manger would rebuild, and in 1943, it would be bought by W.L. Moody Jr. Major addition was added in 1949 that added another four-story wing with 125 rooms a new lobby was built, a swimming pool was added, and air conditioning was added throughout the hotel. Today, there's a display case that surrounds the fireplace that contains memorabilia. Another five-story addition was added in 1966, and another restoration project in 1988 added a new ballroom, meeting rooms, and 33 more rooms and suites. Famous people who visited the hotel over the years were Lillian Langtree, Sarah Bernhardt, Ulysses S. Grant, Robert E. Lee, Presidents McKinley, Taft, Eisenhower, and Roosevelt, Mae West, Roy Rogers and Dale Evans, Babe Ruth, and Oscar Wilde. This is clearly one of the most acclaimed hotels in the state of Texas, but it is also considered the most haunted hotel in Texas, too. There are many rivals to this claim, but I think the Menger Hotel probably makes a good argument for that claim with its long list of spirits found here. Usually, claims are 32, and there are many, many people with their own personal experiences. All types of phenomena are reported from rapping noises to faces staring out from windows to doors opening and closing on their own to the scent of cigar smoke. Brandon Corey, one of the listeners, wrote me, I've overheard you mention the Alamo and the Manger Hotel in San Antonio, and having worked at the Alamo, I can verify the haunting." and can correlate that many of the staff in both locations have had many a run-in with spirits. The employees all seem to have their own personal stories to share. Two of them were up on the third floor at the east end of the hotel, walking down a hallway. They were visiting with each other when they suddenly stopped, startled by what they were seeing. They saw a white mist that resembled smoke, and it was coming towards them. They stood frozen as it passed right through them, and they felt a chill. They turned to watch as this mist continued down the hall towards a set of French doors. One of the doors opened, the mist passed through, and then closed. The employees took off downstairs. Two waiters in the Renaissance room were setting the tables for an event. On one of the side tables, they set up 100 wine glasses in four rows of 25. They started to leave the room when they heard the sound of a glass falling over. They turned around and watched as each of the wine glasses was pushed over one at a time. You can imagine they're thinking, oh, God, we're going to lose our jobs. Two porters in the lobby went into the ladies' room to clean it, and as they approached the utility closet with the supplies in it, they heard a bunch of banging around in there as though buckets and mops were being moved. The door was locked, so they tried their key and couldn't get the door opened. They called for security, worried that someone was in the closet, possibly a homeless person or something. They just weren't sure. The guard used his special keys to open the door and they found no one inside and nothing amiss. They closed the door again and heard disembodied laughter coming from inside. To me this sounds like it was an intelligent haunting and that it was meant to fool them just like it did. And you can imagine if they had a key to the door and they couldn't get the door open that whatever this spirit was on the other side was holding that door so that they couldn't get it open. I don't know why all of a sudden the security guards were able to with their quote-unquote special keys. Were they ghost-zapping keys? And of course, guests have plenty of stories too. There was a guest taking a shower and when they got out of the shower, they found a ghost standing in their room dressed in a buckskin jacket and gray pants. He seemed to be talking to something unseen and he yelled, Are you going to stay or are you going to go? He yelled it again two more times and then disappeared. In the bar, there was a weird incident. A young man was sitting at a table in front of the mirror at the north end of the bar. A couple walked in and sat at the table facing this young man's. Suddenly, an ashtray went flying off the table and landed at the young man's feet. He asked the couple why they threw the ashtray at him when he didn't even know who they were. The couple insisted that they didn't throw the ashtray. That is when the cocktail waitress let them know that there was a spirit in the bar who liked to move things around like that. And apparently he didn't like this young guy if he's throwing ashtrays at him. Thankfully, he didn't hit him with it. There are two ladies in blue here. So we don't have a lady in white, but we have a couple in blue. They both roam the halls in, of course, blue dresses. One doesn't seem restricted to the hotel and has been seen dancing on the ramparts of the Alamo next door. The other is described as looking middle-aged and her dress has red embroidered stars on it. and She wears boots that look like they're too big and bulky for a woman. I've heard them described as mannish. She is seen sitting in the lobby at times reading or knitting, and then she disappears. And speaking of the Alamo, there are spirits that spill over from that location. And like I said, not only do you have the Alamo right next door, but part of the Alamo would have been in this vicinity. So parts of the hotel are built where the fort used to be. So I'm sure that there were people who died in those areas too. So it's no wonder that you have spirits that would be connected to the Alamo here as well. Soldiers are seen standing on the second floor and looking over the railing, one of which is called the Spaniard. This Spanish conquistador is also seen in the lobby in full armor. There are Confederate soldiers seen here as well. There's also a four-year-old little girl. Her story is that she was run over by a horse and carriage outside of the hotel in the late 1800s. She is seen behind the front desk in the lobby, in the bar, and in the Colonial Room restaurant. She is mischievous and is known to play games with the staff. They've taken to calling her Sarah, and people claim she has long brown hair and wears a white dress. So maybe she's our quote-unquote lady in white. We would just call her a little girl in white instead. These are random stories about indiscernible spirits except for maybe Sarah, but there are some spirits who people believe they can identify. One of the more well-known is the spirit of the chambermaid who was murdered by her husband, Sally White. She loved working at this hotel. Obviously, they loved her and took care of her funeral arrangements. So that's probably why we have a connection here. I've read all different accounts. I've read that she was killed right outside of her home and she was coming to the hotel for work. I heard that she was shot right outside of the hotel and they brought her in and that she died in the hotel, but I would think they probably would take her to a hospital. I don't know for sure where she passed away, but I don't think she passed away at the hotel. I think she's connected to it just because of her emotional connection to it for the work that she had done here. And when you hear some of the descriptions I'm going to make of her, I get torn about whether she's completely intelligent or if we're just seeing something residual going on here, but it's a lot of residual. So I don't know if Sally really was that hard of a worker that she's just all over the place working. She's easily recognized because she always wears a white scarf around her head. She originally stuck to the oldest section of the hotel, but now has been reported nearly everywhere. She still seems to be doing her job in the afterlife, often being seen carrying towels and bedding in her arms. One guest claimed to see Sally come walking through her door carrying a towel and disappearing into the bathroom from which she never emerged. Another female guest stepped out of her shower and saw a maid folding sheets near the bed. She was startled not only because she didn't expect to see someone in her room, but because she could see right through her. Another guest ran into Sally in the ladies' room in the lobby. She described her as having short, curly black hair and either being Native American or Latina with a paper-like tiara in her hair and a maid outfit that you would probably see in an old movie. The interesting thing about this description is I've heard that Sally was African American, so I'm thinking that she might have been a little lighter-skinned maybe, and that's why she could have passed Native American, Latina, something like that. I'm not quite sure, but I've heard several different things about her. The guest went into a stall to do her business and heard Sally rattling around stocking stuff. She wondered why this woman, this maid, was wearing a tiara. It seemed kind of strange to her. It's not really something people do nowadays. She thought she'd ask her when she came out. Possibly she was the head maid, and that's just the way that they made that distinction. What I find interesting, too, is that she's wearing a tiara here, but in other stories, she's always wearing some kind of a white scarf over her hair. So I don't know. Do we have two different maids here that we're talking about, possibly? When the guest exited the stall, she didn't see the maid anywhere. She went up to the front desk and asked about the headpiece and why this maid would be wearing one. This is something I would totally do because I just have to know. The clerk directed her to a man in the lobby who kept track of the ghost stories. And after she gave him the details, he told her that she probably just saw Sally the ghost. The guest was positive that this was a real person. She walked away and then saw this same maid holding towels out in the garden. She looked to see where this man was so she could show him that this was a real person. When she looked back, the maid was gone. Others have seen Sally wearing an old long gray skirt and a bandana around her forehead, the uniform that was common during her era. Primarily appearing at night, Sally is generally seen walking along the hotel hallways, carrying a load of clean towels for the guests. For those of you who have listened to all of the episodes, you might recall that I have a young listener named Charlotte Jane. She wanted to know if Teddy Roosevelt's ghost was seen anywhere. I think she'd either done a report on him or had read up on him or something, so it made her curious about the president. She wanted to know if he had a ghost anywhere. And it just so happens that the Manger Hotel is a place where his ghost is seen. He loved the bar, and that is where staff members have seen him after closing time, sitting at the bar. A new employee was closing up the bar by himself when he heard something behind him. He turned and saw a man sitting at the bar, gazing at him intently. He knew he should be the only one in there, and he ran to the door, frightened. This is Teddy Roosevelt sitting there. I don't know what kind of look he was giving him, but it was enough to scare him. Or maybe he could see through him or something. I I don't know exactly what was so frightening about it. But he runs to the door, and he starts pulling on the door to get out, and somehow he's locked into the bar now. I don't know how he was supposed to get out after his shift was done, but he's locked in there. He is pulling on that door, trying to get out. He starts banging on it. You can imagine the panic this poor kid is having. He's new. I don't know if anybody had told him about it since he's been locked in. It does make me wonder if some people thought they'd pull a prank on him. I don't know. But he's screaming and banging on this door. You can imagine the guests are going by going, what in the hell's going on in there? Someone finally hears him. They get him out of there. And he's just in this total panic. And he's like, you know, go, 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 Ghost! So there's, there's a ghost in there. I mean, he's just freaking out. And he, he keeps pointing towards the bar. So whoever's let him out goes in there and looks. There was no one sitting at the bar anymore. And the only way out was through this door. Either this kid was frightened for no reason at all, or there really had been a spirit or something sitting there that scared him and then disappeared because it nobody came out that door but that kid. Sometimes Roosevelt's ghost can be vocal, and he has tried some of his recruiting tactics on the employees, and he occasionally hollers at the employees, too. So you can just imagine him uh, ordering some mint juleps at the bar and wanting to pass it over to another employee or, I don't know, a guest sitting there and saying, hey, you want to come along with me and my Rough Riders? Another specter with an identity is Captain Richard King. He had been the owner of the King Ranch, which was one of the largest ranches in the world. The Manger Hotel was one of his favorites, and he had a personal suite at the hotel. It was in this suite that he decided to die after his doctor told him that he was going to die. He had stomach cancer. He wrote his will there and goodbye letters to family and friends and died in 1885. That suite is today called King Ranch Room. It is here that Captain King is seen. What is really strange is that the room was remodeled, so the door was moved, but Captain King still enters his room where the door used to be, so he goes right through the wall. There's also a red orb seen in this suite or just outside of it. This is the only place where this orb is seen in the hotel. And part of the reason why King might be connected to this is not only did he love this hotel and then die here, but his funeral was also held here too. The Manger Hotel has seen a lot of death, whether it was natural deaths or suicides in the hotel, to accidents outside, to men dying in battle. Has this led to spiritual activity? is the Manger Hotel haunted? That is for you to decide. While I have been inside of it, I encourage you guys, if you're ever in San Antonio, even if you don't stay there, at least go through it. There is a self-guided tour you can walk through and check out things. The ghost tour that I did in San Antonio took us inside and told us about the spirits in there and pointed out some of the things in the lobby. So it really is a hotel that you need to see. And if you find Ernesto Malacara at the hotel, he is the man to talk to about ghosts. That is the person that that woman was sent to who thought that she'd seen Sally's ghost in the bathroom. And every single ghost book I have on San Antonio mentions Ernesto and that he is the man who has the ghost stories. So he's definitely known for that. And the great thing about this is this is in the heart of the downtown historic San Antonio area. So you've got the Alamo right there. The Riverwalk is very nearby. They have a great restaurant there. As a matter of fact, the oldest restaurant in San Antonio is still there. Great Mexican food we ate there. You've got all the different hotels. You walk down a couple blocks. The Emily Morgan is right there. So you've got another haunted hotel there. And then I think three or four blocks up the other way, you've got the Haunted Gunter Hotel. So lots of great things to see in San Antonio. It's another one of my favorite cities. I want to encourage you guys to check out the website at historyghostbump.com. And if you'd like to send me some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. I would love to hear your true ghost experiences that you've had, because I know people really love to hear those true stories. I'm sitting here in my little recording studio, booth, whatever you want to call it. It's actually the closet in my office. <laughs> and I'm looking up at the wall and I have a picture up there that is an original piece of art that I created, which is going to be the postcard going out to all the executive producers who helped to support this show. If you want to get on that Christmas mailing list, it's not too late. You need to sign up over at Patreon or at PayPal at a dollar a month and you will go on the mailing list. For those of you who are already executive producers, make sure that I have your correct mailing address updated over at Patreon, or make sure you email me or contact me in some way if you are giving via PayPal. I want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We'd like to welcome into the cemetery... Carat D. Domizio, you will be getting a spot on the niche wall. And Roz Normanton, we're going to be putting you in a chest tomb. Thank you so much for your support. Be sociable. Drop the chain rattling, neck biting, and shape shifting. And join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page and follow.